Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Joel E. Correa, author of Disrupting the Patron, Indigenous Land Rights and the Fight for Environmental Justice in Paraguay's Chaco, published this year by University of California Press. Dr. Correa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's wonderful to be here. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Yeah, thank you. So I'm a human geographer by training and have been working in Paraguay since 2006. Um, Before I joined academia or came back to academia, I started doing um, international development work in Paraguay and working closely with um, frontline communities and different kind of aspects of development. Really got attuned to issues of land rights and issues of social inequality that are manifest in different ways in Paraguay. And this book really stems from uh, inspiration from some of that work and insights from some of that work, and then how that influenced my kind of path in graduate school and eventually to a, a PhD in geography, where I did uh, the primary research for this book, and then the book expands greatly from that uh, work. And so a lot of the kind of broader goals and interests in writing this book actually came from wanting to communicate some of the grand challenges and, and issues that a lot of people in, in Paraguay are really confronting. So as you'll see in the book itself, um, it touches a lot on the questions of inequality that are manifest through land rights and the distribution of, of land tenure inequality in Paraguay. This manifests through several different kinds of forms, but really is driven by soybean production and cattle ranching and a long legacy of um of land tenure uh, distribution that has greatly favored uh, elite political classes and and greatly been at the challenge of uh, small-scale producers or campesinos, as they're called in Spanish and Paraguay, and especially indigenous peoples as well. And so the book grapples with those broader kinds of historical contexts and um, wants to kind of like think with the effects of those processes on indigenous peoples in Paraguay's Chaco region, which is the western part of the country, and it's also the site of extreme deforestation and and really radical social and ecological change in recent years. And so it really centers on the struggles and the resistance efforts of of Enchlet and Sanapana indigenous peoples in that region uh, with the goal of communicating what's happening um, in the Chaco itself and, and really centering on three very emblematic cases of resistance and resurgence, but also three cases that have pretty disparate outcomes and, and effects, you know, through their processes of of resistance and organization uh, over time. And so that's kind of some of the broader kind of interest. It's really driven by a commitment to um, kind of drawing attention to the issues of indigenous land rights and indigenous human rights in Paraguay and the issues of land tenure inequality and agrarian change that are really shaping the country and have for quite some time. But um, that I suggest and really think feel strongly about the need and warrant further attention such that people can understand what's going on there and perhaps support those struggles if they're interested in doing so. All right. So the title of the book is a little bit of a pun. So can you talk about the the two meanings of the word patron and how they're being disrupted in the the case that you're talking about here? Yeah, definitely. Thanks. So that is definitely, it's a pun for sure. Uh, In some regards, it's a play on words with regard to the Spanish word patron. And um, it's a word that's very, very commonly used in in many parts of Latin America, but particularly in Paraguay. And it was just part of a, an everyday discourse that really resonated in conversations with folks and everyday, convers- and everyday conversations and joking and, and interviews. It just kept coming up and it's it's just central, right? And so the way in which people imagine social relationships and the way they imagine different kinds of things happening. And so I decided I wanted to think with that a little bit more and put it centrally in the book as kind of a, a bit of a, a way of thinking through the dual meaning of the word patron in Spanish, because that dual meaning is really, I think, it helps us understand some of the different processes and also brings it home and grounds it in such a way that is kind of true to the context with which people are using that word, but also reveals some of the different processes um, that the book grapples with. So Patron on the one hand, and how it's most commonly used in the Paraguayan context and broadly across Latin America, 
really refers to like a boss or somebody who is the kind of who controls resources more broadly. So like you might say, hey, patron, eh, or this is my patron. And when somebody is referring to the person who pays them, essentially, who pays them a wage, they call them a patron or a large scale landowner might be called a patron. Or even as I talk about a bit in the book, you know, in everyday like joking and, and conversations, folks will say like, hey, patron, give me a cigarette or hey, patron you know, give me what have you, you know, and so it becomes kind of like a very clear indicator of a type of social relationship, a social relationship that's often an unequal social relationship. So whereas you might have a patron and a peon, uh, or someone who is the controller of resources or wages, and a peon is somebody who might be working for that patron, for, for example, on a cattle ranch, because much of the book is really centered on issues of cattle ranching and the legacies of cattle ranching in the Potawatomi Chaco and their effects on indigenous livelihoods and well-being. So thinking about that long-standing kind of relationship between indigenous or between um, non-indigenous cattle ranchers and indigenous peons, so the non-indigenous cattle ranchers, which were often referred to as patrones, and and non excuse me and indigenous peons. Thinking about that social relationship is is kind of key because it is very much uh, a social relationship and a political economic relationship that affects processes to the current day. Um, there's also like an important form of reciprocity or a reciprocal relationship that uh, imbues this patron relationship. So it's not simply just a unidirectional, there's a patron who's a boss or an owner and a peon, but there's also a peon that provides services or provides some sort of something that the patron also needs. So it's not just a unidirectional kind of hegemonic uh, form of uh, overt power over through the, uh, whereas one who is the patron has power over the person who is not the patron. There's much more of a kind of a, dyna a dynamic social relation there. And also in thinking of the, the social relationship of the patron, it's also in Spanish, the word in Spanish is is gendered male. So there's the word patrona uh, in Spanish, which would indicate a female or a woman who is of that kind of um, social position. So either an owner of resources or a controller of resources or someone's boss would be a patrona if it's a woman, a patron if male. And I chose that as well because it's very gendered often, these uh, social relations of power and those who are really controlling kind of these large-scale cattle ranches and making a lot of the decisions about land access and control that affects indigenous lives uh, and and who are often the targets of resistance by indigenous peoples as well so that's like one facet of this idea of the patron is that it is very much a social relation and it it keys us to the political economic and social relations um that permeate over time that this story kind of grapples with from historically you know in the initiation of uh, European colonization in the region all the way through to the present day and thinking about those kinds of relations and how they endure, but also are changed over time. And then there's a second meaning of patron in Spanish, which is also key, and that is uh, it's a pattern. So the word can be used to indicate a boss or an owner of resources, or on the other hand, it can be used to indicate a pattern. So thinking about as well, as I was just mentioning, these social relationships and how they're established over time and endure there's also like very clear patterns of human rights violations, patterns of resistance, patterns of action that people are taking. So I think that that dual kind of sense within the book of using that word of patron to indicate that social relation and that political economic relation, but also to show the ways in which some of these relations are repeated over time and how they are manifest through different forms of oppression and resistance is key to understanding the, the ways in which people endeavor to disrupt those patterns and also change those social and political economic relationships. So bringing the patron, that concept, into light in those two ways helps us understand both that social relationship and that pattern, but also the forms of resistance, both kind of uh, extraordinary and everyday or quotidian that indigenous communities and my collaborators, Inchitet and Sanapana, from uh, the, the three communities where I've been doing uh, long-term work, are really working to kind of disrupt and change those relations such that they can come into uh, a different relationship with their ancestral territories and reclaim their lands and also reassert new forms of autonomy in those spaces. So that's kind of like that idea of, of bringing that dual meaning of patron. And I, it's also important, not only just on a pun level, or if you will, like that kind of heuristic, but it's also, I think, important and part of the commitment of trying to 
maintain a grounded relationship with concepts and the ways in which people are thinking about um, and enacting their own kind of resistance within Paraguay itself. So I, I was really thought it was important to bring in Spanish language into the the title itself as a way to kind of like indicate that as well, because a lot of the book is trying to do some bridging work and thinking with debates within Latin America, bridging those within debates that emanate from what we're also calling like North America. And so part of that bridging work comes out in the in the title itself. So that's kind of part of the way of like changing and altering some of those social relationships or those kinds of like discursive relationships as well. So that's that was kind of the idea with that and um, and where it comes from. All right. So you mentioned cattle ranching in the process there. And that's, of course, the the big economic activity going on in the, the Chaco. And one of the things that you say about cattle ranching is that it seems that the Paraguayan state values the cattle more than it values the indigenous people there. So can you talk about how that manifests in, in practice? Yeah, thanks for the question. So putting that into context, Paraguay has its economy is really driven by two primary um, agricultural poles, if you will. One is soybean production. Paraguay is the fourth largest exporter by tonnage of soybeans in the world right now. And cattle ranching is another uh, pole of that economic production. And Paraguay, I believe, is the sixth largest exporter of uh, beef uh, globally at the moment. And so these are two really, really uh, influential and extensive um, forms of uh, agricultural production that really shape much of the political economy of the country, but also uh, land struggles and questions of social resistance. They really um, imbue a lot of social struggle with kind of like a resistance to or a tension against um, the these forms of production. And so when I'm talking about the ideas of the Paraguayan state, perhaps um, valuing cattle life over that of indigenous life, it really comes down to a question of looking at the ways in which resources are invested to ensure uh, cattle cattle well-being. Like so, there's like very much like a biopolitics of the non-human or of the more than human, other than human that is rendered visible by looking at and thinking about the ways in which there is a, a very much an institutional kind of um, framework that is very well set up to regulate and ensure to regulate the production of cattle life and to ensure the well-being of cattle life through all kinds of like extension and outreach programs, through uh, like mass vaccination programs, through huge investments in in really like the, the Ministry of Agriculture and its services that uh, support cattle ranchers such that they can uh, ensure that their cattle thrive uh, because it's really seen as this kind of backbone of national identity, as well as one of those drivers of national economy. And um, putting that into comparison with like just on a um, like a simple budgetary manner or budgetary scale with regard to the state's support for indigenous well-being and the, the, the actual like budget line items as far as how much money is spent to support indigenous peoples and indigenous programs and education, uh, indigenous access to health care it pales in comparison uh, to that of cattle ranching. And so to me, it really draws into stark contrast the ways in which some forms of life are valued and supported over the ways in which other forms of life are valued and supported or not. And I think that's really important to draw that into to a context of stark, uh, stark uh, comparison because it's also not just a question of like the sheer numbers and like these institutional apparatuses that are created to support one form of life over another, but it also very much maps onto the historical trajectory of the like the formation of the Paraguayan state, its relationship with indigenous peoples throughout that whole time. And it's also its relationship to the ways in which colonization unfolded. And so that's one of the things that that some of the chapters in the book really grapple with is looking at and thinking about how the colonization, or I should say like the European colonization of the Paraguayan Chaco, which is the Western half of the country, really is tied to the expansion of cattle ranching because this, the whole region was largely seen as this wasteland, right? Uh, many colonists called it a, a green hell. Uh, in Argentina, they call it like the impenetrable 
there's all these notions and ideas of the space is just like devoid of value of extremely difficult. It's hot, it's thorny. Sometimes it's flooded, sometimes it's extremely dry. It depends on where you are, how those environmental conditions manifest. But it's a very, very challenging context. And for many, many years, it was seen as just a place that was largely avoided by European colonists. Um, that was not only due to the biophysical conditions of the place, but also to fierce indigenous resistance. But eventually in the Paraguay and Chaco in the late 1800s, you start to see this push to colonize the region really as a push to assert Paraguay's state territoriality further west to kind of firm up its borders with uh, Bolivia and also to some degree with Argentina. And cattle ranching becomes the vehicle through which that is achieved. And so there's a very close relationship between the expansion of the Paraguayan state territorially speaking, and the role that cattle ranchers played as the, as de facto state actors in this frontier space, because there were essentially no state representatives or actors in those areas. And so it was these cattle ranching colonists that kind of came into what was the lower uh, Chaco region, and then eventually like expanded further north into the Chaco region. You, see, you start to see this really close relationship. And it's something that endures to the present day, because if you were to look at the Paraguayan Chaco, which is half of the part, which is half of the actual national territory of Paraguay. The Paraguayan Chaco is uh, over 90, 95% private property right now. And the vast, vast majority of that property is used for cattle ranching. And it's also driving some of the world's highest rates of deforestation over the last 20 years. And this all really also maps onto longer processes of indigenous dispossession. And so that's another part of the reason why I, you know, center in on that fact that there's a commonplace statement that, you know, like in that cattle live better than indigenous people do. People will say that at different points in time in Paraguay. I've heard that in many different instances, not only in the research for this book, but preceding the research for this book, working in other parts of the country in the southeastern portion, which is much more like soybean territory. That was just like a common phrase that people would often say is that cattle live better than indigenous people. When you take those kinds of like commonplace phrases, which are half joke, but also very much based in reality. And you start to like tie them apart and look into them and think about them and think about the political, economic, ecological, and social processes that have enabled those kinds of like social truths to become, uh, you know, circulating and, and to become things that people utter in different instances across the country. There's actually like a very serious and important history there and process that persists to the present day that is really, um, you know, we need to unpack, we need to think with, we need to understand if we are then uh, at any point whatsoever to move toward um, to disrupting that, to turning that over, to ensuring that people are able to live well and to live in a dignified way uh, by their own choosing. And so I think that that's another part of the reason why, you know, I center on that fact. And, and just to kind of like wrap up my thoughts on this point, the other piece of it has to do with the fact that the three cases that I'm talking about in this book, uh, which are those uh, of the Enchlet and Sanapanal peoples, there are three specific communities that center um, that are featured centrally in the book, that is of Sohoya Maxa, Jaque Axa, and Zamokasek. Those three communities all had cases that went before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Um, and this was a decades-long uh, resistance where basically communities a common thread that, that weaves between these three communities is that each had been dis dispossessed at some point for the expansion of cattle ranching. All the members of these communities at some point had lived for, or their parents or their grandparents had lived as peons or uh, relative, I mean, essentially indentured servants on these cattle ranches in different parts of the, of the Chaco. Eventually, as legal frameworks evolve uh, that adopt kind of rights for indigenous peoples and land rights as an option and territorial restitution and land restitution as an option, each of these communities demands the restitution of portions of their ancestral territories, which then requires the restitution or the, the turning over of private cattle ranches to the communities because all of this land has been converted into cattle ranching. So there is no option to take back land other than to take back ranches, right? And so... That uh, process, though legal, and there's a clear framework that it's laid out in Paraguayan law from the constitution to its uh, normative statutes, um, is fiercely resisted by cattle ranchers, which is not surprising. And it's also resisted by and large by a lot of Paraguayan state officials because there's a close relationship between those cattle ranching patrones and the power and like senators and, and, and congresspeople in, in the Paraguayan state. So there's a lot of resistance to actually ensuring 
the indigenous the indigenous rights that that peoples are guaranteed through the state's legal frameworks. And so through those long processes, eventually um, each of these three communities was able to petition their cases to the Inter-American System of Justice, uh, going through the Inter-American Commission and eventually making it to the Inter-American Court. And the court ruled on behalf of each of these communities. And um, that was a big impetus, actually a seed for why I even began this research was to understand why states resist complying with their own internal law and human rights uh, norms uh, at great expense to human well-being, at great expense to international reputation and those types of things. And so understanding like we have these three major landmark cases as far as like international indigenous jurisprudence is concerned. These are huge cases uh, internationally and within the realm of indigenous land rights um, that came before the Inter-American Court. Yet the state does nothing really to ensure the implementation of those decisions. And it really, the, the decisions open up a whole new process of resistance um, through which these three communities have had different measures of success or have pushed forward their, their struggles and their, their claims. And so the fact that the state was also, or I should say state actors were very much resistant to ensuring indigenous rights and human rights in all of these cases, despite all of these very clear human rights violations, despite commitments to international norms to ensure indigenous rights and domestic uh, legal frameworks to ensure indigenous rights, it again like provides another bit, uh, another form of texture, if you will, to this kind of disclaim that you know the state really values cattle life over indigenous life. Yeah, I think that makes a good segue into my my next question with this theme that comes up again and again in the book, where the indigenous people have the law and you know these court decisions and everything on their side, and yet the government manages to find ways to stall and drag their feet and not actually implement uh, what's going on and, and put stuff off. Um, so then I wanted to ask about some of the strategies that people use to try to push the state to actually do something, to actually you know, comply with these court judgments uh, and, and so forth and get out of this, you call it a state of legal liminality, uh, where you know they've got the the law on their side but it's also not doing anything so uh, how do people push for something to actually happen uh so that they can actually achieve you know reclaiming their land and improving their lives yeah thanks for the question so yeah and i think one way that i wanted to to think with and to um center this kind of conundrum the situation that's a bit of a conundrum is thinking with this idea of legal liminality so um and some several scholars have written about similar processes with regard to migration politics in the United States, um, where, where folks have certain legal protections, but always find themselves outside of the protections of the law. Um, and so really thinking about the fact that, okay, there exists legal frameworks and human rights frameworks to ensure the well-being and certain conditions of life for specific populations, in this case, Inchlet and Sanapana peoples and all indigenous peoples in Paraguay. Uh, yet, despite the fact that there are these frameworks, despite the fact that there are these very clear legal protections and commitments made by the state, state actions or actions by state institutions and state actors create conditions whereby those rights are, are, are regularly violated and, and, and then are regularly violated and creates these conditions of what I call liminality. So it's a state, it's, it's like being at this threshold of having rights always uh, enshrined in the constitution, for example, but always having those rights denied uh, simultaneously. So it's this condition of never quite being in one state or the other, but kind of stuck in these kind of constant phases of, of, of sort of in-betweenness that is creates new forms of violence for against people. So it's an epistemic and, and psychological and emotional violence where people understand that they should have the well certain conditions of life guaranteed through these uh, through these legal frameworks, but yet are always subject to the rejection of those rights and having to um, work with and live with and through those kinds of conditions. And how then do people come to these different moments where they're able to challenge that and they do that all the time and they have been doing you know Anshlet and Sanapana peoples my collaborators in this book interlocutors are 
are doing this for decades. And so there are, I draw from an idea that's, uh, that I call the dialectics of disruption. And so thinking about um, the ways in which people overturn legal liminality and the ways in which people confront the reticence of the state to ensure their rights. And that's something that I grapple with in the book through that idea of dialectics of disruption. And so to put it simply, you know, it, a dialectic has like two terms. One might be a thesis and the other would be an antithesis. And through the, ten, you know, the, the relationship between those two different opposing terms, there becomes uh, uh, um, some sort of new state, which might be a sort of synthesis, just to put it in a very simple term. So thinking about the ways in which these uh, opposing or tense kinds of forces come together and interact to then uh, translate into a new kind of state or condition so if we if we're to think that like the thesis in this case of the dialectics of disruption might be to comport oneself with the law, therefore to like follow legal norms to making land claims to following legal requisites for community recognition to appealing to uh, international bodies for uh, recognition as well to try to find essentially a legal resolution to acting within the confines of the law that might be the thesis the antithesis to that would be. Uh, breaking the law or stepping outside of the law, or as some of my interlocutors, you know, say in Guarani, it's lay ari, or it's actually like a Guarani Spanish combo. But lay ari is like thinking about working above or aside from the law. So, how do we think through the kind of like dialectic strategies that people employ over time to ensure that their claims and their aspirations for their communities are advanced? And so, that's kind of much of what this book follows through in its different chapters is thinking about these dialectics of disruption. So laying out the framework through which Paraguay has adopted um, indigenous rights uh, and, and how those uh, new forms of legal rights are become understood by Anshet and Sanopana communities, how Anshet and Sanopana communities leverage different legal processes to kind of push back against the state and to push back against ranchers to try to reclaim their lands through those kinds of legal means. That's one form of, and one strategy. And that is also based on like long-term relationships with local human rights NGOs and international human rights NGOs. So very much like a kind of a, a standard, if you will, like strategy of following the law. And the other piece of that though is, is very calculated and significant um, moments of bending and sometimes breaking the law to force the state then to take action. So after exhausting several different attempts over decades or over many years to to get the state to comply with different acts, um, or excuse me, to get the state to comply with its own legal frameworks and laws, communities do things like, um, you know, close roads, which is very simple and it's commonplace. It happens all the time in Latin America and in Paraguay, but nevertheless, it is this kind of like stretching and, and, and breaking of the law because it is actually uh, against the constitution to, to deprive the right of mobility for, for folks. And so we're thinking about these kind of like everyday kind of forms of resistance um, that are also, uh, I say everyday because they do happen with some frequency, but they're also extraordinary in that they do take a lot of sacrifice and commitment by communities to do. Folks will go and occupy a road and move their entire families and much of the community, including children, you know, and they close a national highway for several days. And they're challenging conditions. People are in the rain, they're in the heat, they are, there's always uncertainty about what's going to happen. One of those cases is, is documented and discussed uh, in the book, whereas there's like the very real threat of police violence, you know, where SWAT teams are, are dispersed to kind of, um, ensure that folks don't disrupt these kinds of transportation networks because they're also the transportation networks that are used to fuel the cattle economy in this region that enable cattle to, to translate or to, to transit roads uh, in semi-trucks, you know, as well as dairy products that uh, will be exported. And when people are closing roads, it changes those kinds of political economic relations and, and asserts new forms of territoriality. So we have to think about the ways in which these everyday acts of, um, of, of resistance are also a form of that dialectics. Another piece of that would be like land reoccupation. So after waiting for decades and years, you know, finally like communities come to a collective decision where they say, we're not gonna wait any longer. And they break uh, the lock that's on a gate and they go through the, the pass through the gate and reoccupy part of a cattle ranch in an effort to force the state to take action. So if the state hasn't acted for decades or has acted in very kind of like cursory or minimal ways toward uh, to um, 
rectifying these claims and dealing with the legal uh, demands of these communities, then uh, there becomes a point, at least in two of the three cases that I was uh, analyzing and have been working uh, with, where communities decided, you know, enough is enough, and we're actually just going to reoccupy these lands. And there will either be state repression and direct violence uh, against the community. Of course, people hope that that wouldn't happen, but they recognize that as a real possibility. Or perhaps the act of occupying the lands would um, would make the would call the state's bluff and would finally like make uh, landowners as well come into new sorts of relationships with the communities and with the state to move forward toward land restitution. And surprisingly, it did work in actually two of the three cases. So in two of the cases where communities eventually decided separately and at different times to reoccupy uh, portions of their ancestral lands, and these are the same lands that the Inter-American Court of Human Rights had uh, had suggested be or had determined should be returned to the communities, you know, um, over several more years after reoccupying those lands and after many more um, uh, many more kind of different forms of struggle, both extra legal and legal, it enabled communities to actually like recover those lands. Um, then there's uh, there are other questions and uh, more kind of uh, technical kind of issues around like whether or not title has been actually um, administered to the communities for those lands or not. But the point is, at the end of the day, through those kind of extra legal acts, like folks have been able to like force the state and force cattle ranchers to change those patterns of relations and to change kind of the ways in which um, that fierce resistance to any sort of indigenous territorial restitution um, the, and open these new spaces of, of possibility and really in, in so doing open spaces where indigenous peoples in Shle and Sanapana are exerting new forms of autonomy and self-determination through these uh, long-standing uh, legal and extra-legal strategies. So roads pop up in a number of different ways in uh, in your book. You mentioned some of it in your previous answer with the road blockades as uh, a strategy used some by some of these communities. And uh, it's even on the cover of the book where you've got this like aerial photo of a section of Chaco and it's got this red dirt road running through it. And then the graphic designer has like tucked the U in disrupting behind the road to kind of draw attention to it. So I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about different ways that roads and sort of the question of who is able to travel where and who can't um, plays a role in the events that you're talking about in the book. Yeah, thanks so much for drawing attention to that. Um, roads do feature centrally in the book, and they feature centrally for several different reasons. Um, the first and foremost reason why roads are so central to the book is because Jake Aksa and Sohoya Maksa, two of the communities that I've been working with for many years and that feature in, the, in this book, um, have long been situated on the margin of a highway. And it's the same highway in both communities are located about 40 kilometers uh, from one another in the same part of the, of the Paraguay and Chaco. And the reason why they're located on the margin of a highway is because both communities through different kinds of processes were eventually at some point dispossessed of the ability to continue living on the cattle ranches that were built on their ancestral lands. So giving a bit of historical context just to clarify this, cattle ranches were built on Jaque Aksa ancestral territories. Cattle ranches were built on Sohoya Maksa ancestral territories. In those processes of those cattle ranches being built, they enclosed those territories and by and large, you know, Inchlet and Sanapana people stayed on those ranches as indentured servitude, uh, as forms of indentured servitude or as peons that were marginally, if at all, paid for their labor, but it was more of uh, the, the right to continue living in that space. Um, as these legal claims advanced by different by both communities, they were eventually kind of forced to leave those ranches uh, and the, the very difficult life conditions on those ranches. And the only spaces left to, to um, remain were literally the margins of highways, uh, the margins of this one highway, this road that runs right through their, through their broader ancestral territory. And so roads are central to this because they are, they've literally cut through um, two of the, the key sites. And they also, roads then open up, um, several different kind of points of analysis and also just the grounded materiality of everyday 
struggles and um, and different kinds of power relations that become evident through thinking with what they enable and what they disavow certain folks. So sitting in Jaque Aksa, for example, and when I say the margin of a highway, I also want to make clear that we're talking about a, there's a road surface and then you have maybe uh, 25 meters or about 75 feet, 60 feet uh, between the road and a fence. And it's that space, that marginal space, literal marginal space, but also very figuratively marginal space where uh, communities have lived for decades. And in that marginal space, um, on the one side is a road, on the other side of the fence is the ancestral territory that folks have been claiming uh, through the courts for, for decades, but yet denied access to. So it's this constant reminder of what could be and what is a close relation to an ancestral uh, to ancestral lands, but always being denied that. And then also very much uh, the road itself opens up a way in which we can understand who is able to transit on those roads, who is not sitting on the side of the road in Jaque Aksa, watching cattle, you know, watching semi-trucks carrying cattle pass by day by day, watching uh, non-Indigenous, I mean, by and large, non-Indigenous peoples transiting the roads in their personal vehicles and watching, you know, buses full of people transiting from one place to another is is a regular occurrence. And it's a daily also reminder of the lack of mobility that many uh, and Sanapana peoples have due to uh, material impoverishment, due to the lack of uh, economic opportunities in those areas. There's almost no labor opportunities. So folks are, are literally kind of stuck in these marginal spaces on the side of the road. And several of my interlocutors, including Belfio, who um, I feature very uh, centrally in the book, you know, refer to the space as a prison. They use the word prison and talk about it as a form of carcerality because they are essentially entrapped on the side of the road. They're unable to access their ancestral territories, yet always witnessing the mobility of other people moving on these roads as well. And the roads become not only uh, a site uh, of this material reminder of uh, dispossession and uh, mobility kind of dialectic, but also they are sites of, of different forms of violence, both uh, if you want to call it like fast uh, and slow violence, like Rob Nixon might use with slow violence, but thinking about the fact that there is like vehicular violence. People get hit by cars, their animals get hit by cars. Um, and that uh, is a very real and material kind of source of human rights violations that people navigate on an everyday basis that also featured in some of the inter-American court cases as well. There's also the slow violence of the fact that living in the margin of a highway with no arable land to raise any sort of crops ultimately produces forms of food insecurity and malnutrition in kids. It also really vastly limits the ability of people to access fresh and clean drinking water because um, who pass on to the private properties of the ranches on the other side of the fence uh, that, you know, where these that the limits the, the mobility of these communities is illegal and then historically had actually been enforced by the threat of death by some of the ranchers who own those lands who would limit folks from from passing on to them to collect water. So what people are left with oftentimes are small puddles that are carved into the margin of the highway. They're often muddy. And so there's these forms of like, you know, everyday uh, intestinal disarray, uh, dysentery, those types of things that exact another form of violence on people because they can't have access or they have no access to medical services on these margins of these highways. And then there's also this going back to this question of mobility um, is that in, in these communities there for, for many, many, many years until very recently, um, there was no form of transportation whatsoever. So if people did have a medical emergency, being able to actually utilize that road to transit it to access needed healthcare in a hospital was often impossible. Despite the fact that there's vehicles passing every day, nobody stops to pick up folks that are trying to hitchhike or saying that they have a medical emergency. And the nearest ambulances are often 80 to 100 kilometers away, and they often just don't come. And that's for various reasons, but that then draws into sharp relief the fact that roads, you know, enable well-being and, and, and mobility for some while continually denying that for others. And so that that's like a key piece of this, because it's not only this like everyday form of life, it functions within the Inter-American Court of Human Rights decisions on the human rights violations against Enchle uh, and Sanapana peoples. And it's also very much this this everyday kind of form of um, epistemic violence, really, 
that is it's quite profound. And I think most people, when they transit on those roads, they don't really think about it. They miss the communities in the margins of the highway. They're very humble communities. There's not much to to kind of like denote that you're passing a community, uh, but there are people living for decades, you know, on these on the sides of the highway and and trying to to enter into their ancestral territory. So it's like a very important piece of that. Another factor about the road is also, and going back to that road closure piece, is I think it also draws attention to the kind of the ways in which territory and territoriality are enacted by state actors um, by because these roads are, you know, of course, they're constructed by the state. These are state highways. They enable the transportation of, of colonists. They enable the transportation of the colonists' goods, such as cattle to be exported or dairy products be exported or gas coming from Bolivia to go to the capital city of Asuncion that people then use to fill their cars, but only certain folks are able to transit those roads. And so they also become a key site of resistance because Nishlet and Sanapanan, other indigenous peoples know that if they cut access to those roads, that is highly disruptive to the function of broader settler political economy in these areas, because there are very few roads that actually transit the Chaco. So they become these points of um, facilitating a type of temporality for settler colonists and for settlers, whereas folks who are able to access, you know, different forms of mobility, be it a motorcycle, a truck, a car, or bus, they're able to move quickly and they're able to go vast distances very quickly. Yet people live on the side of the highway for decades and are unable to go, you know, just to the nearest hospital at any time in emergency situations and are regularly denied the ability to, to, to have those kinds of mobility. And that is another kind of form of, of what well, helps us understand as well the ways in which environmental injustice is also manifest through the life conditions that people kind of um, navigate and confront in these in these different contexts. And lastly, as well, you know, I was also thinking quite a bit with um, some of the infrastructure turn uh, scholarship and thinking about the ways in which, you know, infrastructures are they facilitate relationships, you know, they facilitate and they draw attention to political economy, they draw attention to power, they draw attention to ecological relationships and social relationships. And so thinking about some of those debates in infrastructure studies and trying to translate that a bit through the like the contemporary or not contemporary, but actual context in uh, the Bajo Chaco and in this area where I was doing much of the field research for this book is key um, to opening up uh, another lens for thinking about the ways in which environmental injustice is manifest in these areas, as well as uh, human rights violations. And lastly, you know, it, as I was moving toward the end of the research for this book and something I'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast is... Um, the construction of this massive new suite of infrastructure projects in the Chaco, because historically roads have been like the key limiting factor to a settler political economy. And so there were two primary roads, that was it for, and I'm talking about primary roads insofar as like paved highways that bisected this region, which is half of the country. And since 2018, there's been over $2 billion worth of investment packages unrolled in the Chaco to um, begin developing a whole suite of new roads. And so it also draws into stark relief again, the fact that um, the state is willing to invest billions of dollars in roads to facilitate soybean exports and cattle exports uh, in the Chaco because it's starting to, starting to be seen now instead of as a green hell, but is being reframed discursively as a quote, central logistics hub, end quote, uh, that will, um, unite all of Latin America or rather South America through as like an export mobility hub and logistics hub for soybean and cattle ranching across all of the Southern Cone. And that, um, that those huge investments and the priority through which they've been pushed in the pandemic also draws uh, attention uh, to this kind of like state denial of indigenous rights because the Jaque Aksa community that I've been talking about that has been situated on the margin of the highway of this Ruta Cinco, this uh, highway number five for decades. Um, they've been on that margin of the highway for that whole time. Or, yet since 2012, they've actually had land that was purchased by the Paraguayan state and returned to the community uh, in accordance with the Inter-American Court rulings. Yet the limiting factor to accessing that um, property is the fact that the state has not yet completed or built 
uh, a 25, uh, I think it's about a 25 kilometer, 30 kilometer road to that community because the land itself is entirely surrounded by private cattle ranches and the ranchers themselves uh, will not allow passage of, of third parties across their ranches, particularly indigenous peoples to access that territory. And so the state has prioritized yet in another example, like this massive like investment in the political economy of, of large scale agricultural exports in Paraguay over the, over the well-being of Jaque uh, Aksa and indigenous peoples by denying them the uh, for over 10 years, you know, the construction of a very small and relatively simple road to, to build. And so the community then uh, remains in this kind of state of legal liminality to come back to that term where they have land rights, but they don't have the ability to access those lands where they have rights, but they're always continually denied. And the road also in thinking about roads helps us understand the ways in which those kinds of forms of legal liminality and um, and environmental racism are manifest through um, state prioritization of particular lives and particular uh, forms of economic activity over other lives. All right. Well, I think that's actually a, a good point to start moving towards the end of our conversation here. So first, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing the book. Oh, goodness. There are so many people. Um, I mean, first and foremost, the book really wouldn't have been possible without the collaboration and trust and time of uh, so many people in in Zamokasek, in Sohoyamaksa, and in Jake Aksa, uh, as well as in Kelly and Magategma. Um, so I'm just deeply, deeply grateful to the time, trust, and uh, relationships that I've forged and and made with Anshlat and Sanapana peoples and and all of those communities, people with whom I remain in close contact and collaboration in different ways. Um, but that's certainly foremost in acknowledgments for this book. Um, so many people have also read versions of the book and provided insights and feedback. Um, I would feel I would feel odd to just name a couple of them, but I do want to thank uh, all the folks who have um, have shaped this book. It's certainly um, a product of many social relationships and of co-thinking and thinking with many people. Um, and it's deeply influenced and shaped by those folks. I, I write about it fairly extensively in the acknowledgement section. So, um, but I am just so grateful for for all the collaborators in Paraguay. And I should also mention folks from Tierra Viva. There's an organization, Tierra Viva Los Pueblos Indígenas del Chaco, and they are the legal counsel that has accompanied uh, Jaque Access of Hoyamaxa and Zamojasek for decades uh, through the each of those communities' legal struggles from initial land claims all the way through the Inter-American Court of Human Rights to the current day, working with communities for over 25 years. And they um, really helped me understand the legal context within Paraguay. They opened up you know, significant archives for me to understand and, and to identify documents that would have been uh, probably impossible to identify otherwise and um, also help facilitate relationships, early, early contact and relationships with communities um, that are at the heart of this book. And so I'm deeply grateful to them um, and also recognize a, a collaborator from Tierra Viva, Jose Paniagua, who passed away uh, while this book was being written. Um, he was a good friend and also um, a, spent a lot of time uh, with me, you know, helping me think through some of these issues and was very generous. So definitely want to recognize him, I guess, uh, as well within that. All right. Well, so then that brings us to our traditional final question, which is what are you working on next? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff, actually. Um, right now, uh, well, I guess I should back up. Since about 2018, I have been um, investigating the construction of um, some of those big road projects in the Paraguayan Chaco. One in particular is called the Ruta Bioceanica or the Bioceanic Highway. It's being pitched as the new Panama Canal. It links Brazil with Chile and essentially is seen as an overland route that links you know, the Atlantic with the Pacific. It's really uh, a major, major project that is radically reshaping the social ecologies of the Paraguayan Chaco, really sheds a lot of light on questions of... Um, of environmental change and social change that are happening in that area. And so I've been following the construction of that project since its inception in 2018 um, to the present. Uh, it's not quite finished yet. It's about halfway done, but it's a major project that's totally reshaping the region and it's going to have profound impact. So it's been 
a totally different kind of endeavor. Um, it's a highly mobile project. I've been working in and with and across uh, so many communities, uh, Mennonite communities, uh, Criollo uh, communities, indigenous communities uh, from Ayoreo, Manjui, Nivacle, Guarani, uh, Sanapana. Uh, it's been a, a very challenging project, but also really, really interesting. And I think it's a, it's a hugely important issue that's going to really change the the fate of at least the Paraguayan Chaco and I think the northern Argentinian Chaco as well. So it's a significant project to keep in mind and to focus on as that region is uh, undergoing massive and radical change. Um, I have some support from Fulbright uh, Scholar Award to do work on that. So I was in Paraguay last year and I'll be back uh, later this year to do more research on the project and I'll be following up on it for several more years just because it's a long-standing project and been slowly documenting and building relationships with folks across that entire region or that entire route. And it's a it's a road that bisects the Paraguayan Chaco from east to west. So it takes you from the Paraguay River in the east all the way over to the Pilcomayo River in the west at the border of Argentina, Bolivia, and Paraguay. And it's a pretty profound um, issue. Another project that we're working on right now is a five-year um, million-dollar NSF grant in northern Ecuador in the Sucumbios province, and we are collaborating very closely with the Siona, Secopai, and Cofan nations, um, working uh, very closely to understand how indigenous territorial management practices um, shape different kinds of conservation outcomes and trying to understand the ways in which different Territorial management practices can lead to uh, greater social and ecological resiliency over time, given different sorts of um, development pressures that are taking place in that area. So the expansion of uh, African oil palm, the expansion of um, hydrocarbon extraction, perhaps like the expansion as well of proposed new infrastructure projects in that area. And it's been a really fascinating uh, project and a new one that is uh, forcing me to think in new ways, um, but it's, it's, it's a great one. And then, um, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it there. Those, those are two of the big projects right now that are still very much in play and in progress. And it's been a lot of fun to think with. All right. Well, it'll be exciting to see what comes of those. So, Dr. Correa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate your time and interest. This has been a conversation with Joel E. Correa, author of Disrupting the Patron, Indigenous Land Rights and the Fight for Environmental Justice in Paraguay's Chaco, published this year by University of California Press.